Eighteen years ago, a young woman named Carmen Greentree traveled to India in search of enlightenment and spirituality. But she ended up in a houseboat in Kashmir in northern India, where she was allegedly held captive for two months and raped repeatedly. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Today, as I said, we're taking you to India, specifically Srinagar. It's part of Kashmir, the northernmost state in India. The area is called Asia's Heaven on Earth. It's absolutely gorgeous there, and staying aboard a houseboat is a unique but not uncommon experience for tourists. These houseboats have been around for years. George Harrison from the Beatles stayed on one in the 60s. When he spoke fondly of his time on the boat, hundreds of diehard Beatles fans raced to Kashmir in search of the houseboat he had stayed on. These days, Daw Lake, where today's story takes place, is shrinking due to pollution and climate change. Authorities have been enforcing a decade-long ban on building and repair of the Kashmiri houseboats that occupy and pollute the lakes and rivers. Owners can't fix them, and the lake is turning into a graveyard for sinking ships. Out of the original 1,500 on and around the lake, there are now 900 left. The boats and surrounding homes dump sewage into the lake. It's turned into a giant septic tank. Carmen Greentree, at 22 years old, knew none of this when she traveled to India in 2004. Nor did she plan for a houseboat experience, but she got one, one that would leave scars. As a young woman, Carmen was an athletic, adventurous, and Australian. Triple A, if you will. When she was a little girl of about five years old, her brother had been diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. Her parents were in a time of emotional distress, and a lot of attention was centered on her brother. Because of this, Carmen spent a lot of time alone or was shuffled from babysitter to babysitter as her parents sought treatments for her brother. They likely tried to protect her by distancing her from the realities of her brother's condition and treatments, but ultimately this made her feel confused and scared. She felt left out and neglected, but couldn't voice these feelings at her young age. As she grew older, she realized her brother was sick and spent a lot of time in hospitals. This led to more sadness, but also more understanding. She found herself craving happiness and feelings of peace. At around age eight, she touched on these feelings one day when her uncle took her surfing with him. He sat her on the front of his surfboard, and as they floated out on the ocean and rode the waves in, she felt amazing. She felt a connection to the ocean and to the surf. She felt the euphoria of being in nature, a happiness that comes from the adrenaline of riding the perfect wave. She felt free, alone, floating in the sea. She began to spend as much time surfing as she could. As a young adult, she tended to feel awkward around people. She felt that she said strange things, and people would look at her funny when she spoke. Because of this, she felt like she couldn't relate to people easily and preferred time alone. Carmen became self-reliant and pursued surfing and exercise because they provided her with the endorphins that she needed to get by. Surfing came easy to her, and she was very good at it. She loved the feeling of exhaustion after a long day of physical activity. I know that some of you listeners know this feeling. Maybe it comes from swimming, running, biking, hiking, strength training, or whatever floats your boat. There's a feeling of peace that comes after a hard day's work. The bone-deep physical tiredness that doesn't allow for mental anxiety at the end of the day. Instead, it makes for a deep, solid sleep. She spent hours and hours floating on the sea, surfing, 
and all those hours led to her excelling in the surfing arena. In her teens and early 20s, she became one of the top 25 female surfers in the world. She trained with other pro surfers for several hours a day, running the beaches and boxing as part of their training. Her success in surfing let her travel the world at a young age. She remembers staying in host family's home, alone, at the age of only 15. These were people she didn't know, and just entrusted her safety to them, and nothing went wrong. She built confidence in her traveling capabilities and learned to trust the people she met along the way. She traveled the world from surf competition to surf competition, chasing championships and sponsorships. She traveled from island paradise to island paradise with all expenses paid. She had amazing adventures and met many wonderful people from all walks of life, but she still felt like she was missing something. She couldn't put her finger on it, but she felt a void in her life. Just after age 20, she found herself in Hawaii, ready for another competition. It was a big event, one that could launch her placement into the top 16 competitive female surfers in the world. When she arrived to check in, the administrators told her that for some reason she was placed on a waiting list instead of being able to compete. She had filled out her paperwork and paid the fees just like any other competition, and she'd been told she was going to compete. She paid for travel and lodging fees, only to find out that because of some miscommunication, she had to stand by and watch her friends compete, realizing that her opportunity to reach the top 16 was floating away. She couldn't advance, as she had thought, and she felt devastated. She said it destroyed her confidence and happiness, and she felt like she had failed. This event, along with a combination of her emotions at the time, led her to abruptly change her path in life. She decided that competing was no longer bringing her the satisfaction it had in the past. In the following weeks, she felt empty. She'd worked so hard for something that wasn't making her feel good anymore. Something had to change. At that moment, she gave up surfing altogether. She had been staying with friends she'd just met while in Hawaii. This particular group of people she felt a deep communication with. She envied their joy and carefree attitudes. After spending three months with them, Carmen went home feeling lost and unhappy. Once home, she began looking for answers to what her next steps in life should be. She dipped her toes into spirituality by attending a ten-day silent meditation retreat. She sat for hours a day, straight-backed, in silence and meditation. Personally, I'd rather drink water from septic Dal Lake than attend a retreat like that. Kudos to anyone who can stand being with themselves for that long. You're the real winners here. The final day of the retreat, the participants would talk about their experiences. One in particular told Carmen about a retreat she had gone to in India. She was able to study spirituality alongside the Dalai Lama. This woman exuded happiness, daring, and Carmen loved her spirited attitude. Her exuberance was something that Carmen desperately wanted. Carmen questioned the woman deeply about her time in India. She asked if safety was an issue, but the woman said she never worried. She'd traveled alone to several different ashrams or religious retreats and met with several yogi teachers, but never felt threatened. Carmen walked away from the retreat, not wanting to repeat the experience. Amen to that. But she was also convinced that she needed more than a few days of peace. The woman she'd met stuck in her mind. Over the next few months, Carmen began selling her belongings and bought a flight to Delhi, India. 
she planned to study under the Dalai Lama and then visit Tibet. The day finally came, and she boarded her flight. Her travel itinerary made for nearly 24 hours of travel time. She arrived at about 11 p.m. local time. She didn't plan too far ahead, preferring to make her plans as she needed to. She'd traveled to several third-world countries in the past, and her experiences had told her that she'd land in a busy airport, and even though she was landing at 11 o'clock at night, there would be plenty of people to help her get where she needed to go. In this case, she was wrong, and this is where her trip began to take a turn for the worse. Remember that this is in the early 2000s. Cell phones weren't in every traveler's hands. Instead of being able to make hotel reservations inside the airport, as she'd done so many times in the past, she was forced to hire a taxi and had to find a hotel on her own. This really meant that now she was at the mercy of the taxi driver. If you've ever traveled overseas, you may have experienced a time where you 100% rely on strangers. This is especially true if you're traveling outside highly touristed areas. You might need to rely on the advice of your driver and drivers often have their own agenda. Sometimes they'll get commissions when they bring you to a business. Sometimes it's their own family's business, and they'll drive you further away, past several hotels or restaurants, in order to get you to spend your money with their friends or relatives. This was the case for Carmen that night. She was taken to what she described as the worst hotel room she had ever been in. It had already been nearly 24 hours without sleep by the time Carmen had landed. All she wanted to do was sleep. When she entered the hotel room, she realized right away that it was barely sleepable, but she was exhausted. She packed two sarongs in her luggage, and she laid one out on the bed, believing that it would probably have bed bugs. She covered herself with a second one and drifted off blissfully to sleep. She didn't sleep long. Instead, she awoke to her skin burning and itching. Sure enough, bedbugs were everywhere. There was no way she could go back to sleep. The next morning, she's exhausted and miserable, having only slept an hour or so in nearly 36 hours. That morning, she meets a young man. She shares with him her plans to go to her tourist agency to help her make her future plans, but he tells her that the agency she wants to use had been suspected of being involved in the murder of a tourist a couple months earlier. So now Carmen feels scared. She had her dates booked for the retreat. She just had to figure out how to get there. She'd read that she needed to get on a bus for a 14-hour bus ride, but she needed to figure out how and where to catch the bus. What happens next, I compare disfavorably to an experience I had with my husband in Cancun years ago. We were given a timeshare as a wedding gift. As soon as we arrived at the airport, we were surrounded by dozens of people who were trying to talk to us all at once. They told us of all the adventures we could go on for free. Free always sounded good to us, so we listened. They told us all we needed to do was listen to a talk about timeshares, and then we'd get a free pass to several attractions we wanted to go to. We made an appointment to meet with the staff, and when we arrived, we were given a tour of the hotel. Then we were taken to a conference room for, where, for almost three hours, we were approached over and over by different sales staff each one becoming more aggressive when we said we weren't interested in buying. They'd visibly get upset with us, then go find another salesperson to try and give us another pitch. It was all above board, but the constant pressure was exhausting. 
It takes a lot for the salty bitch side of me to come out, but eventually she made an appearance. By the time we finally got out of there, we were exhausted and upset that we'd ever agreed to show up to the appointment. This had to be ten times worse for Carmen. She was exhausted and alone, and this young man who was helping her was pressuring her to change her plans, and then she'd be placed in the hands of criminals. It began with the young man who was helping her. He approached her while she was feeling tired, culture-shocked, and lost. He offered to take her to a better tourism service, one that was safe. She agreed, but instead of taking her to the tour service, he took her to a fake storefront where he began to sell her different tours. He was friendly and charismatic. He suggested that she visit several sites and attractions, but she wasn't interested. She could sense his frustration, but he was respectful, even while he pressured her to buy a package. All she wanted was to get to her destination and take a nap. He kept pushing and pushing, and she kept telling him no. A second man came in, and they tag-teamed her. They told her with charm and firm pressure that she shouldn't travel alone. It wasn't safe. Instead, she should let them take her to the attractions. Again, she told them she wasn't interested and that she just wanted to get to her retreat. She needed to catch that bus. They told her that if she was in a hurry, instead of taking the bus, she should take an hour-long flight to Srinagar in Kashmir. From there, she could take a short taxi ride and then a much shorter bus ride to her final destination. Not only that, but they told her the 14-hour-long bus trip she originally wanted was very unsafe. Their way was much safer and quicker. Safety, safety, safety. That was their angle. She was so exhausted at this point that she agreed to the new plans. She'd get there faster and then she could just rest. They drove her to the airport and just a couple hours later she was landing in Kashmir. She was told that someone would be waiting there for her to take her to the bus. At the airport she was picked up by a man named Rafiq Ahmad Dandu. It was May 27, 2004 and Rafiq was the older brother of the young man who helps her make her travel arrangements. Rafiq immediately told her that it was too dangerous to be outside alone as a woman and that she needed to stay with him. He would drive her to her next destination and take care of anything she needed. Although Rafiq was older than his brother, he was just as charming and charismatic as his younger brother. He was also very pushy and demanding, seemed like a family trait. He told her that, unfortunately, her plans had changed a bit. The bus she needed to catch wasn't running today, but it would be in two days' time. She'd now be staying for two nights on a houseboat nearby. Lucky for her, his family owned and operated it. They had a spare room to rent to tourists. How convenient. Now she'd be able to catch the bus on its next scheduled trip and be well-rested. No matter how he wrapped this bullshit, it was starting to smell, and Carmen was beginning to feel less comfortable. She figured it must be Rafiq trying to make a little bit more money out of her, and once again she went along with it, mainly because she didn't have much of a choice. She was in another country with a huge language barrier, and here was this friendly guy who could speak enough English to help her get by. Now she would need to stop by a bank to withdraw a little bit more money to help pay for the houseboat. It was here where she realized something was very wrong. They had stopped at an ATM for her to make her withdrawal, but Rafiq stood between her and the ATM and insisted that because she's a female in a Muslim state, she wasn't allowed to withdraw her own money. 
He said women aren't allowed to be out alone. They aren't allowed to go to the bank. They aren't allowed to do anything for themselves. Men had to have all dealings when it came to money. Instead, he insisted that he go inside with her bank card. It was custom in Kashmir to do things this way. She was at a loss. There was no one else who could help her, and she had no idea where she was. She felt like she was at his mercy, so she gave him her bank card and PIN number, and he walked into the bank, ironically leaving her standing alone outside, which Rafiq just finished explaining to her was supposedly extremely unsafe. Twenty minutes later, he walks out, but he gives her no cash and doesn't return her card. He tells her that he'll take care of things for her. Later on, she'd find out that he had taken all the money from her bank accounts. In that moment, feeling helpless, she was trying to calm herself down by telling herself that she's sure Rafiq was a good guy. She's sure he was just trying to help her. She's sure that he'll get her where she needs to go. She was trying to cope with her exhaustion and the overwhelming sense that something wasn't right. She told herself that soon she'd be able to sleep and relax. They transferred themselves from the car to a small boat, and they made their way to the houseboat, which was tied to a small island, more like a mud flat. It was several hundred meters from shore. The houseboat was separated into two parts. The front was sometimes used to house tourists. It was just a room, and it was a rare occurrence to have a tourist guest, but when it did happen, that one particular area of the boat was for them to stay in, and the back part of the boat, which was much larger, was home to the Dundu family. Rafiq was the eldest brother living on the boat. He was married and had a baby. His mother and father lived on the boat, along with one of his brothers, who was several years younger than Rafiq. In a way, this reassured Carmen, making her feel a bit safer. She'd mentally accepted that she'd spend a day or two on the boat, and then she'd be on her way and back to her original plans. They began to settle in for the evening, the whole family eating dinner together before Rafiq's family excused themselves and retreated to their rooms. Rafiq stayed with Carmen, regaling her with history and telling her about the local culture. Carmen wanted him to leave. She was tired, but she wasn't rude, and she tried to pay attention. Finally, Rafiq asked Carmen if she'd like to see the lake at night. He wanted to take her out in the dinghy for a night tour explaining how beautiful the lake looked with the lights twinkling on the water. The only way to get off the houseboat was to take a tiny wooden rowboat, which I called the dinghy, or to catch one of the passing speedboats. Rafiq planned to take her out in one of the smaller rowboats. She told him that she was feeling really tired and just wanted to go to bed, but as was his nature, he was pretty insistent and pushy. He told her that she had to see the lake at night and that it was beautiful at this time. She felt the easier path would be to just go with him to get him to shut up, and then she could finally get some sleep. Meanwhile, the rest of the family was sleeping in the back of the boat. He helps her onto the rowboat, and they row out into the lake. As soon as they get far enough away from the houseboat, Rafiq begins to get handsy. He tries to put his hands up her skirt and down her blouse. He tries to kiss her. Carmen refuses his advances, pushing his hands away, but he was persistent. He did stop his advances after she started making a lot of noise and drawing attention from passers-by. He rowed her back to the boat, but he wouldn't leave her alone. He followed her everywhere. She told him she'd had enough. She was tired and she was going to bed. 
She walked into the room and closed the door, but there was no lock on it. She climbed into her bed, hoping he'd respect her privacy, but had a dreadful feeling he wouldn't. And moments later, he walked in. He proceeded to rape her on the first night on the houseboat. She said emotionally and mentally she just gave in. She was too tired and couldn't fight it anymore, and she knew he wasn't going to stop bothering her. She prayed it would get over quickly and that she could get off the boat the next day. She was fooling herself and trying to cope with the harsh reality of her situation. She had no way of contacting anyone for help. She said she'd already been feeling so depressed, and now all she could focus on was getting to the Dalai Lama. She told herself if she can get through this, then she can get to the Dalai Lama, and she'll learn to feel happiness. She felt like if she didn't get there, she might die. She was in such a dark place mentally that she didn't really care if she died. She felt beaten. She didn't feel like she could go to his family because they wouldn't believe her over him. She was also afraid that she might be blamed for Rafiq's advances and the rape. She was afraid that the cultural consequences might fall on her. She had friends that were Indian, and she had friends that were Buddhist, friends that were Muslim, and they were beautiful people. But Rafiq wasn't one of those beautiful people. The next morning, she packed her bags and asked to leave, but she wasn't allowed to go. Over the next few days, she would lose hope that she'd ever leave the boat and she'd lose track of how many times she was raped. Rafiq would rape her whenever he wanted to. Carmen said his younger brother would rape her whenever he could as well. She blocked out so much of her time on the houseboat that she doesn't remember most of the assaults anymore. She said, I was completely broken. I wasn't even me anymore. I was existing as a shell. I didn't think I was ever getting off that boat, and I thought I would die there one way or another. The houseboat floated in the middle of the lake hundreds of meters from shore, and Rafiq had her passport, documentation, and money. He told her that if she tried to escape and was found in the heavily militarized area without her documentation, she'd be thrown in jail and raped. He hit her if she tried to stand up for herself. She was held against her will and forced to wear a traditional sari. She said she was given a Muslim prayer mat and an English-translated Quran. She was pressured to pray five times a day and was told to do whatever their family wanted. She asked to leave on several occasions, but when she did, she'd get a slap across the face. She found herself having to dote on her abuser in order to manage her situation. She learned very quickly that if Rafiq got angry, he would take it out on her, so she tried to keep him happy. She felt sick knowing that while he was doing horrible, hurtful things to her, she felt forced to try to make him happy. She would participate in a lot of the activities that the women did, including sorting grains and preparing meals, cleaning and childcare. Occasionally, Rafiq would take her to town with him. Although she always looked for opportunities, she was never able to ask for help. Early on, she tried to ask Rafiq's father to help her. When she did, she tried to phrase her sentences in ways that would not have consequences for her. She'd say things like, Rafiq is trying to have sex with me, but Rafiq's father was immediately dismissive of her, and she knew he wouldn't help her. The whole family would become aware of what was happening. It seemed to Carmen as if Rafiq was trying to take her as a second wife. She eventually tried to ask Rafiq's wife for help, but in her broken and very limited English, her response was that she was loyal to the Quran and therefore loyal to her husband. 
Carmen thought of escape constantly. Maybe she could swim towards the shore and escape the houseboat, but she was afraid of Rafik capturing her and beating her. He took away all her belongings and made it clear that he didn't have a conscience and didn't care about her feelings. He would do whatever he wanted with her and didn't feel guilty about it. One day, Rafik took her on a hike with him. He had been hired to be a tour guide for two non-English-speaking European tourists. Carmen didn't know why she was taken on the hike, but she was happy to go for two reasons. One, to get off the boat, and two, because while hiking with company, she knew she wouldn't get raped. On two other occasions, tourists came to the houseboat and slept for a single night in the guest bedroom. Both times she wanted to ask for help, but was too afraid. Besides, how could they help her? She had no passport or money to leave. After about two months of misery, Carmen was surprised when Rafik brought a cell phone home. He forced Carmen to call her parents, asking them to send some of her things and to send money. Rafik's plan was to sell her items and spend the money however he wanted to. Of course, he stood over her to make sure she stuck to her script and didn't give anything away. She wasn't able to convey her need for help to her parents. What a helpless feeling that would be. If there was any good news, it was that now her parents had a phone number. Maybe you could call it fate or a miracle like Carmen does, but something unexplainable happened which ended up freeing Carmen from her rapist. One of Carmen's closest friends wakes up in the middle of the night from a nightmare. This friend is named Catherine. She dreamt that Carmen was in danger and that something was really wrong. She couldn't remember the dream exactly, but felt overwhelming fear for her friend. Catherine trusted her intuition when it came to that dream. She called Carmen's parents to tell them that she was really worried about Carmen and that she wanted to get in touch with her. Using the phone number that Rafik had recently used to make his extortion demands, Catherine, together with the help of Carmen's parents, reached out to the police and then the Australian embassy in India. A short time later, back in India, Carmen suddenly hears the sounds of large boats approaching the houseboat. When she looks outside, she sees several big burly policemen. One of them calls out to her, asking for her by name. She remembers distinctly the feeling of strength and determination in his voice, but also a feeling of a sense of safety in the sound of his voice. He tells her that he's there to help her, and asks her what he can do for her. She identifies herself, and they take her off the boat. The police then return to the houseboat to arrest Rafik and his brother. It took Carmen a week to get home, because authorities reportedly couldn't find her passport. Eventually they recovered it, and she was finally able to fly home. Carmen was traumatized and was beating herself up over everything that had happened. She felt like she got herself in trouble because she was stupid. Of course, we all know this isn't true. Most people are optimistic and naive at a young age, and some of us, even at an older age, could fall for this. Carmen went home and tried to go on with her life, but found out that she couldn't function well, especially sexually. For several years, she became celibate. She wrote a lot and went to therapy. Eventually, she wrote a book called The Dangerous Pursuit of Happiness. The book details everything that happened to her in India. She said that writing it was cathartic for her. Talking about the trauma and sharing her story has made her feel so much better. It also made her feel less alone. She said another tourist reached out to her after hearing of the book and reading it. 
This man said that Rafik extorted money from him several years before Carmen's experience. I didn't find any corroborating information on that story, so I can't say it's factual. It came directly from Carmen. She warns young travelers to be wary and to listen to their intuition. When her book came out in May of 2020, Rafiq was interviewed by the local Indian media in Kashmir. In the Kashmir Monitor, Rafiq claims that Carmen had booked a night in his houseboat, and then she chose to extend her stay by two months. He says that during this time, she befriended a Nepalese man who helped Rafiq on his houseboat. He claims that one day he saw the man coming out of Carmen's room. Rafiq yelled at the man in front of Carmen, and Carmen got upset. This caused Carmen to abruptly run away, and a couple weeks later, the police came looking for him, because she told them that he had raped her. He denied these claims, saying that Carmen kept busy by going to several different tours and hikes in the area, and that she was never held hostage. During his interview, which was recorded, he was visibly seen sweating and wiping the sweat from his face. He said that everything Carmen said was lies, and that she destroyed his reputation. He said he never raped her. How could he when the houseboats are moored five feet from one another? Surely someone would have heard her and saved her. She could come and go as she pleased. In fact, when she left by her own free will, she still owed him money. He told the media he was a family man, and that if Carmen's accusations were true, why didn't she ever come back to India for a trial? Carmen, during interviews, mentioned that she was too scared to go back. All she wanted was to get on with her life. Rafiq was jailed for questioning for only 12 days before being set free. Not much of a punishment, although his name was dragged through local and international media. Rafiq has not been supported by his community. He claims he was beaten by the locals. I think this is telling. I'm guessing people had their suspicions. If he was completely innocent, I think his community would have rallied around him. According to the Indian media, had there been a trial and Rafiq and his brother were convicted, they would have been sentenced to life in prison. Carmen, looking back, wishes she'd been a stronger person then and that she had followed through with the trial. Eighteen years later, Carmen is practicing in abuse recovery and holistic health. Most of the information for this episode came from Carmen Greentree herself. If you'd like to know more about it, you should read her book. Again, it's called The Dangerous Pursuit of Happiness. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider sharing the podcast with a friend or giving it a nice rating and review. Follow the podcast on social media. It's on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I truly feel like I have the best listeners, so thank you so much, and I'd like to wish you all fair winds and following seas and safe travels of all kinds. See you next week.